I wasn't sure what to talk about this evening, being Yom HaShoah today. And I prepared a whole talk, but um, it didn't really feel right <laughs> what I was going to talk about. And um, so what I'm going to do in the end is uh, share with you and talk a little bit about uh, Drusha of the Pizetzner Rebbe from his work, the Ish Kodesh. The Ish Kodesh was written during the war in the Warsaw Ghetto and hidden with a number of his other documents before the ghetto was liquidated, found after the war, and sent to his brother who lived, uh, who lived here in Israel, as he had a sort of cover paper which asked whoever found it to send it to his brother who lived in Israel. And we're going to be looking at a, a piece from Parshat Zachor, which is from 1942, February 28, 1942. Right, so quite far along in the war and uh, really in extraordinary circumstances and one of uh, the drashot, which I'll mention briefly uh, where he mentions sort of very specifically the experiences and suffering that are happening right now. It's a very long drasha, and we're not going to look at all the drasha, and I'm not even going to like read and translate the whole drasha. Tonight I'm going to sort of mention the maybe read a word or two from the beginning of a paragraph and then talk about the theme of the paragraph that he expresses. And some of you uh, who were in my class, last week we looked at an excerpt from this um, in our section of Chesed and Gvura. So I want to start in the middle of the drasha, where he makes this claim where he says, Ki kelim kol din it says the Shvirat Kalim, the breaking of the vessels, this Kabbalistic destruction of the worlds, which is the origin of all the suffering in the world, was from Chesed. came from love, from loving kindness. And with that line, he starts a whole discussion of the danger of Chesed, the way that Chesed can actually be destructive, that it can actually harm people instead of help. And he says that chesed can actually destroy. And he seems to mean it in sort of two ways. He talks in particular about Shafrat HaKelim, that what happened was the light of God, the chesed, the light, the givingness of God, was so great that it overcame the vessels, which broke apart in that experience. And so there's a, in one sense a positive way in which love can destroy us. There's a way in which we experience love, it can sort of shatter us and shatter our boundaries, and shatter all the ways we're holding on. And love can sort of overcome us like a wave, like a tidal wave. And we can be drowned, but to re- be reborn in a kind of freedom. But there's another kind of love, what we call a chasid shoteh, right? A stupid chasid, uh, which is idiot compassion. We've talked about it before. So when you think you're being compassionate, you think you're helping somebody, but actually you're doing just the opposite. And the classic cases that we've talked about in our modern language would be enabling and codependence. Right? Somebody's doing something really harmful to themselves or others, and you think you're being all kind and helpful and loving towards them, but actually you're just enabling them to act in an incredibly destructive way. So he says there's this power of chesed which is very important, but also which is very destructive. 
Rosh Hashanah is very destructive. And then he says, on the other hand, gvura, right, discipline, harshness in a certain sense, which we think might be bad, actually is really powerful and can be really positive. And he gives the example, he says, right, that you have to use gvura sometimes if you want to do actually some great act of chesed. If you want to arouse, awaken this tremendous chesed in you and reveal it. So then you have to use a kind of discipline, a kind of harshness on yourself to enable yourself to bring forth that chesed. And the example he gives here is that if you want to give a large sum of money, right? not just a little sum of money, but you want to give a lot of money. And there's a lot of resistance to it, of course. So there's a kind of discipline which enables that chesed to come forth. And of course, we see that in what we do here. We see that in the self-discipline of this practice. It's hard. Our mind wants to go elsewhere, right? We're practicing this for chesed, for love, for compassion, for development. But we've got to have a lot of gavura, a lot of discipline, which brings us back again and again and again. We go away, we come back. We go away, we come back, right? There's that discipline, which is always at play, always at play. And there's the Gavura he mentions here of making space for other people. Right? There's the Gavura which is the Tzimtzum of the self, which is how do we retract a little bit so that other people can have their space to play, to be free, to be open, to participate in community. And then he says something else. So, so what do we do, given this capacity of chesed and gvura, and the capacity of both of them to bring forth deen, to bring forth destruction? What do we do when destruction is loose in the world? Right, talking about his own time. What do we do when destruction is loose in the world? When hatred and violence and suffering is loose in the world? And he says, here's the key. The key is that Gvura is productive when it's hitka brut alatzmo kivyachal lo bezulato. When the gvura is self-discipline and not a gvura turned towards the other. All the hatred, the violence, is a certain kind of gvura that's turned towards somebody else. And the key is a kind of self-discipline. And he models this on God. He says, what's God's first act? God's first act of tzimtzu, of contraction, is self-discipline, is self-contraction. And that is actually an act of chesed. It's an act of tremendous love of the creation of the world, of giving forth of the world. And so he says, in this space of tremendous suffering, our reaction, I just find it extraordinary every time I read this piece, is to turn gavura on ourselves so that we send more chesed into the world. He's in the ghetto in 1942, a time of you know, I can't imagine it. I mean, you know, unimaginable suffering, and poverty, and violence, and death. And he says our response has to be 
to reinvigorate ourselves with a discipline that allows us to send chesed and loving kindness out to the people around us. Right? How can we support all those others who are with us here in this situation with loving kindness, with support? And so he says, When you see Dean in the world, then you have to use this Gvura on yourself. And then he says, We always had this work, which we still have today, of course, to overcome ourselves in the sense of our desires and our Yetzirah, and all the ways in which we don't want to be loving towards other people. We always have to work to use some discipline ourselves so we can bring that love out to other people. We're going to do it even in this situation. But then he says, Vata nitosfa lanu avodalit kaber alatzmenu ala nefila veshivron ruach shelanu. But now we have this added work. This added work. And he talks about this in other places as well. To overcome ourselves, to conquer our fallenness of spirit. Right? to conquer our depression and our despair. And I'll just read now, this is this piece, which is sort of added in and highlighted in the text. And he says, Hen ma'od ma'od Ki Hashem And the thing is very difficult. For the suffering is too much to bear, may God have mercy. But at a time when many of Israel are burned alive for the name of God and are killed and slaughtered just because they are Jews. Then in any case still we have to stand and in this test. And with this self-sacrifice, to overcome ourselves and to strengthen ourselves in God. You know, I mean, this is tough stuff to talk about, and certainly not the normal uh, stuff we talk about in this in this class. But his deep spiritual resistance is just extraordinary. He's in a place of tremendous suffering and a possibility of incredible hatred. And it's not that he's very clear about the evil of the Nazis and he wants them to be destroyed, right? I don't want you to think about it as some kind of sort of pacifism or, you know, not being interested in this suffering ending right now. Um, But he says our task here is to not allow them to defeat us, right? Not allow them to cause despair by which we lose what it is to be a human being. And that our basic orientation to the world is that when we see suffering, we ask, how can I bring compassion and love to this situation? And that's how it begins the paragraph. Our basic orientation is like you see Dean in the world, first response, how do I bring love to this situation? And that is an extraordinarily deep lesson for us. In whatever circumstance we find ourselves, we see suffering, we see Dean, 
how do I bring love to this situation? Is there some way that I can utilize what I know, what I've learned, to bring loving kindness, to bring chesed to this situation? And can we do that in a way which stops that cycle of violence? You know, we in our own totally different ways see some in large ways in our political world and some in small ways in our own life, see that cycle of hatred and anger and violence and the response of Dean with Dean and the response of anger with anger. I saw the movie I remember a while ago, I don't know if you have seen it, Crash. It's a great film, if you haven't seen it, great film. And it's all about these wheels and circles within circles and people can't escape this response of basically oppression and hurt and suffering and responding with more oppression and hurt and suffering and fear and anger and they're sort of flailing around trying to get out and it's very hard for them to find their way out. You know? And we do the same thing. It's very hard for us to find our way out. Like in the little ways. You know, At home we start a fight and uh, I say something and Debbie says something and all of a sudden it's like, and it's hard to find your way out. And all of a sudden you're caught in it and it's hard to find your way out. And we can just sort of encourage ourselves, set that intention of, can I maybe in that situation, or maybe an hour after that situation, right? Or maybe even the next day and reflecting on that situation, think, okay, how can I now bring some chesed to that situation? I've seen the dean, I've seen the destruction, can I now bring some chesed? And we see this too in the same talent challenge he talks about here. This challenge of despair. You know, we obviously in totally different ways, but also fall into that sense of despair and that sense of we can't do anything and the sense of being lost. And there's a kind of strengthening, sometimes a kind of taking ourselves by our own bootstraps, right, which just says, okay, I'm going to take a moment now and I'm going to overcome that despair. And he says actually, He says, "V'zerem es zachor, right? Asher korchav aderech, right? Zachor is about Amalek. And what does it say about Amalek? Asher korchav aderech, who encountered you on the road, or classically, one of the classic readings is who chilled you on the road, right? Shirotzel lekarerotam, right? They wanted to chill you, to take away their passion, their fire, their ability to change, to serve God. Lashpilotam, right? To cast them down. It says, and who does it, who do they cast down? Dis vosfolen unterzich." Those who have fallen under themselves, sheruham nofel bikirbam, that their their spirits have fallen inside of themselves. Right? We've all been there at some point. We felt like totally hopeless, lost. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to deal with this situation. And he says that's Amalek. Right? Every time we experience that in the world, that's Amalek. That experience of of hopelessness. An experience of hopelessness. And he says, how do we counter that Amalek, that hopelessness? It's a fascinating response. He says we do two things in this paragraph. He says one is hope. Right? We hope for deliverance. We hope for the possibility of change and with the knowledge that it's possible for things to change. We don't know if things will change. But it's always possible for things to change. Right? There's this great 
if you want to know the comics, The Sandman. If you don't, they're good comics. Anyway. There's this great scene where this character, Dream, who is kind of like the instantiation of dream and visions, who's lost some of his power, has to go down to uh, hell and recover one like amulet of his power. And he's playing a game with one of these demons. And the game is that uh, each person says something and you have to like counter the other person until somebody wins. And, uh, you know, the demon says, I'm a whatever, I'm like some tiger attacking, and he says, I'm a wasp who stings the tiger, and he says, I'm a disease which attacks and starts to kill the wasp, and he says, like, I'm antibiotics who start to do whatever, and he says, I'm um, the, you know, supernova, and he says, I'm a star being born to possibly life, and he says, I am the end, the demon says, I am the end of everything, I am destruction, I am chaos, I am the end of the universe. And Dream says, I am hope. Right? And sort of wins the challenge. So there's hope, right? That possibility of hope, which is like in the face of anything, the, the knowledge that something can change. But then he says something else, which is kind of crazy, but this is what he says. He says we have to have hope and at the exact same time acceptance of the suffering. And we have to hold them together. Because <coughs> if we just have hope without acceptance that everything's pinned on something changing and when it doesn't, as happens sometimes, we're destroyed. And if we have the acceptance without the hope then there isn't the yearning and the strive to change, which has to happen and has to be there. We want it to change. We don't want the situation to change like this. That's right. But you have to have them both, right? Hope, the knowledge of the possibility of change and the work for change, and total acceptance at the same time. And that itself, and if we go back to this theme before, is an extraordinary kind of combination of Gvur and Chesed. The discipline, I mean, the discipline to do that in our own lives, in our normal circumstances, when we face some difficulty, to have the hope, to know change, and to really be able to accept, okay, but I'm going to accept, and he says accept with love, or accept with love that this is the way it is right now, and hope for deliverance, and hope for change. And so that's tremendous work we can take from the Ishkodesh here. Can we bring that discipline of every time we encounter that place of tremendous challenge or hopelessness, of uncertainty, to know that the possibility of change is always there, and to know in some way that we can accept if nothing changes. Things stay just the way they are. If nothing gets better, we can be with that too. We can be with that too. And then he says, Ein Hashem Shalem ve'ein Kisa Shalem Zaro Right? It says, the name is not complete, which is what Rashi says, and the throne is not complete until the seed of Amalek has been destroyed. And he says, we have to lavin halashon zaro. Like, what does it mean, this, his descendants or its seed? 
It says, because it could have just said, until they erased Amalek. And we already know Amalek means the whole nation, and it means, you know, Haman Agagi and all that, right? We already, we get, he has this whole discussion of, we get that it means all the things associated with Amalek. So why Zaro? Why do we have to say the descendants of Amalek? Obviously it means the descendants of Amalek. They're still Amalek. Avala remez hu achim chemash Amalek zorea. Kigam achar shimcha Amalek hazarim shezara yishamu. He says, the key is that we have to erase what Amalek sowed, right? Because even after Amalek is erased, what Amalek sowed remains. This is really the key, right? Terrible things happen in the world, and we do things, and other people do things. And every act of hatred and violence and destruction sows a seed of hatred and violence and destruction. And every act of love and compassion and connection sows a seed of love and compassion and connection. And our task of wiping out Amalek, of wiping out this aspect of despair, this aspect of, in another drasha, he talks beautifully about, says, you know, the Nazis want to make you feel less than human. But actually, it's their lack, their inability to see your divinity, which makes them act in that way. And what you have to acknowledge and recognize is your own divinity. The fact that you are made of the divine nature, the very divine substance. So that's our work. And that's our work we try to do here. There are seeds that have been planted in the world, and we see them bear fruit. There are seeds that have been planted in ourselves and we see them bear fruit. And we work and train in mindfulness because really at any moment we have the choice of what we want to plant. Of what we want to plant. Each moment is a moment of planting. And we can plant a seed of openness and understanding. We can plant a seed of compassion. Or we can plant a seed of rejection, of pain, of distance, of exclusion, of suffering. And so that, I just want to suggest, is our challenge. As Yom HaShoah is drawn to a close this year, to see what kind of seeds we can sow in the coming year, in the coming week. To see the way in which we can bring our loving discipline to our actions, to our responses, to our practice day to day the ways in which we can open to and see the seeds of destruction that are within us, and instead of reacting from them, welcome them in and allow them to be diffused. Instead of reacting out of them, when we're caught in that argument, maybe one time we can stop for a moment and recognize, right here, how can I act right now, seeing Dean in the world, from a perspective of chesed? So thank everybody for learning together with me. And as normal, we'll open up now to questions, thoughts, anything people have.
anything related to the other prisoners, how the guards were, were really not so, um, couldn't, couldn't be held at fault maybe for where they were. I don't, I don't know quite the words. For yeah. But maybe if you could share that with us, and then how could we relate that to the Nazis? Can we relate that to yeah. the Nazis? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, the story I told uh, was from this book, Playing with the Enemy, which again I highly recommend to everybody, which is about Mandela's sort of, uh, I mean it's about, it's amazing, you just see an amazing piece of what he does, and about the Rugby World Cup, which took place in South Africa, uh, anyway, which is an amazing book. But um, he uh, was in Robben Island, and been imprisoned there, and was coming visited by his uh, lawyer, one of his lawyers, George Bezos. And um, he was brought out, and they were, you know, not treated very well, dressed in these really disrespectful kind of, you know, shorts and short sleeves, like not dressed in a way in any way that was respectful to these prisoners, especially the African prisoners. And uh, was marched out with this contingent of guards, right, to see George Bezos. And they start talking to each other. And they're chatting with each other, and Mandela says, Oh, George, just a second, forgive me, I forgot to introduce you to my honor guard. <laughs> right? Um, and uh, all these, like, Afrikaner guards are kind of, like, in shock. A, they were in shock that, like, this black man and white man, George Bezos was a white guy, Greek originally, uh, were, like, hugging and so happy to see each other, right? And, and what George Bezos reported in his book, he said to the reporter, was he said they were like so surprised by that kind of relationship, all of a sudden, they acted like an honor guard. <laughs> they sort of like stood there and like shook my hand and were like, that was the way they sort of related. Uh, and he said, you know, you could also see, so when, when Mandela left the van, the prison van, they brought him in a van, they took him out, the way that, even though he was surrounded by these like eight huge guards, he set the pace. You know, he sort of set the pace. Like there was a there was a dignity, there was a presence in him there. And then what Mandela reported in this book is what he said to the other prisoners was that um, these guards too were a victim of the system, which had brutalized them and made them brutal. And uh, if they could relate to them in a different way, maybe they could see a different result. And one of the themes of the book, I mean, why it's about the Rugby World Cup, is that. The rugby and the Springboks were this really Afrikaner tradition, uh, which was hated by black Africans. Like the black Africans always used to cheer for the other team, you know, whenever South Africa played somebody <laughs> in rugby. Like that was the thing. You know, nobody cheered for the Springboks. So it was this whole sort of movement of reconciliation, which Mandela did to try to sort of see the Afrikaners that there was still sort of support for them and. Um, So that was his story. Um, I don't know what it means for, it means for the Nazis. You know, I don't know. It's not certainly not the same situation. I just don't feel like I have. I feel like you know, to talk about something which is so beyond my experience feels so much too small to sort of talk about that and what people experienced, you know. But what I'll say in a smaller way is that I think what it demonstrates 
is the possibility of sort of we're talking this in drasha, which is when you see destruction and hatred in some ways, right? And brutalization. Sometimes there's a possibility of when you respond with love and understanding, it can transform even the person who is perpetrating that hatred and destruction. You know. Um, and it doesn't always work, right? It's not like I, we, I don't want us to be like Pollyanna about this, right? Because the reality is, also in South Africa, people got tortured and killed and murdered and destroyed, right? And even they showed the love. It's not like that just solved everything. It's not like people didn't get tortured and killed. They did get tortured and killed, right? It was terrible. Um, and, you know, I don't know what the answer is. I'm not sure that's for the family who's lost their child or whatever because they were taken to you know, Brumfontein prison or whatever, and, you know, fell out a window, that's that experience. I don't know if that answers anything. But I do think we can see, you know, Mandela's an example, and his wisdom and insight was that if we want to emerge out of this with some sense of wholeness and love and some sense of a country that can function, we have to do it, you know, in this way. You know, he learned, I mean, he learned Afrikaans in prison. You know, he read up on sort of Afrikaans history. He understood it. Um, and, uh, I don't know, there's a real beauty in there. I'll just tell one other scene from, from the book, which was, I thought, beautiful for me. It was extraordinary. He came in on the first day of his presidency, right, the first day of his office. And, um, all the people who had been working there, who were all white, of course, um, were like packing up their stuff. Some of them had already left. Some of them had packed up their stuff. And uh, he called them all. He said, or he called them all into a meeting. And he said, look, if you're totally opposed to us and our government and you can't work with us and you want to leave, that's fine. You're welcome to leave. But if you think we're about to throw you out, We'd like you to stay. We need your help. We need your expertise. We need your work in building this country together. And if you're willing, if you're not, you can take the pension package. You can leave. That's fine. But if you're willing, I'd like you to stay. You know, even that, just that sort of show of compassion to, you know, I don't know who those people were, but they were all like working in the nationalist government, um, you know, who had been doing apartheid for a number of years. So just for me, it's that possibility of can I sometimes meet that hatred with chesed? And what possibilities can that produce? Um, can you talk a little bit about what the Oshkosh said with regards to how chesed can breed um, evil? Yeah, yeah. He says, you know, this is a classic sort of Kabbalistic idea that actually we have to bring chesed and gvura into balance. When we do that, we achieve tiferet, which is compassion, which is sort of genuine love. And that uh, when you do chesed, when it's out of control, then when it's not wise, right, then it actually causes destruction. So one example I mentioned, which I mentioned already, was enabling. Right? The classical example of it is that there's like an alcoholic in the family. And uh, instead of challenging the person, right, giving them consequences, being harsh with them in the way that needs to be harsh for them to seek help, or at least for the family not to be as 
um, destroyed or affected or damaged by the presence of that person or a person with some other kind of problem, right? The family enables it because, right, supposedly in some ways you want to be compassionate or kind to that person or help that person in a difficult situation. Often it has more to do with fear, uncertainty, instability, sense of not being worthy enough to challenge that person, right? So that's one example maybe on a, a greater scale. Can we still define that as chesed? Yeah, so in that scheme we still define it as chesed because in a certain sense they're being nice to the person, right? They're giving to the person, right? They're helping the person out. I'll give you another example, an example I gave in class, which is a very poignant example for me. When I was in college, uh, lived in Providence, I would give money to people on the street, one point I decided, especially because I had a friend uh, working with people, just aware of the different uses people made to that money, that I was just going to buy people food. I wasn't going to give them money. Guy came up to me, said, can you, buy me a, can you give me money? I said, no, but I'll, I'll buy you a sandwich. Went to a restaurant, stood in line. He was like, no, no, no I want to go to another restaurant. I was like, okay, fine. Went to the other place, stood in line to buy a sandwich. We're getting up to the counter. We make the order. He says... It's embarrassing for me for you to pay for me. Can you give me the money and I'll pay? Right? I said, fine. Right? That seemed like a reasonable request. I gave him the money. He walked out of the restaurant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and not only did he walk out of the restaurant, but like literally, to have a know, there was a heroin dealer like on that corner, right around the corner, which is why I wanted to go to that restaurant. He walked out of there basically and bought heroin with the money I gave him. Right? There was like no like lag time, you know, like that's what happened. So that was an example of, fine, fair mistake. It's not like I was being terrible or anything, right? But that was actually idiot compassion, chassid shateh, right? It was like I was trying to be chassidic, I was trying to help somebody, but I really did not help that guy by giving him another fix of heroin, right? So we have to bring wisdom, which is guru, which is discerning wisdom. You know, so there's an intelligence which comes to, okay, I want to help here, I have a movement towards love, and that's great, but now I need to discern what is actually going to be helpful in this situation, and what's actually going to be harmful in this situation, right? How am I going to help this person? How am I going to help myself in this situation? How am I going to help somebody else in this situation? It can be also, I think, uh, towards ourselves as well. You know, for instance, sometimes we turn chesed towards ourselves in a wise way in a way that let's say we need a break or we need a rest or we need to do something that's just gonna I don't know, open us up, have a little joy, do something else, that's great and sometimes what looks like chesed is just a kind of unskillful indulgence right? we're just like watching TV for another hour right? because <laughs> we feel like we're exhausted or something and really it's not helping us it's not even feeling, making us feel less exhausted Right? It's just kind of like frying our brain and we feel all agitated when we're finished. Right? Or whatever we're doing. Like, there are all kinds of ways to do that. So we think we're doing chesed towards ourselves, but really we're not. And so the Gavura piece is that piece of, oh, can I bring in discipline for a second and just check out the situation? Is this really good for me? Is this really good for the other person? Or not? And another piece of that Gavura piece, and every important piece, is that often, often in situations, like let's say the situation I was in, we don't want to say no. Right? No feels wrong. No feels bad. Because no feels like you're not giving, you're not helping the person, etc. But actually sometimes no is what is necessary. But we're uncomfortable with no. At least a lot of us. Some of us are good at no, but some of us are pretty uncomfortable with no. Right? 
makes us feel like a bad person. It makes us feel guilty. It makes us feel like, you know, um, just uncomfortable. Like the person's not going to like us. That's a big thing, right? They're going to be mad at us. We don't want people to be mad at us. Makes sense, right? And so we're not willing to say no. But really knows what needs to happen in that situation. So this balance is working on, can I find that place of no, right? And that's also the place of chesed sometimes. One of the benefits of this practice is that you start to learn Gavura in the discipline right, of training your mind. Right? One thing we do is we train our mind. And you've noticed that. right? It's actually a discipline, and it takes Gavura, and it takes practice. Because naturally, your mind doesn't actually want to be trained. Right? Your mind wants to do all kinds of things. And you're like, no, come back, come back, come back. Right? You start to learn that discipline of training your mind. And that actually is incredibly helpful. That's incredibly helpful beginning for discipline. Why? Because the first thing you need to do in all these questions you've just been asking, the first thing you need to do is actually stop and check out the situation. Right? You've got to stop. You've got to be willing to stop. You have the discipline for your mind to be like, don't just fall into whatever my normal pattern, whatever that pattern is, right? whatever side of it that you lay on. We're always just falling into patterns. And the gavura, the discipline, which we learn in the practice, because we like, oh, seeing thought, seeing ourselves falling away into thought, stop, come back. Seeing ourselves falling away into the story, stop, come back. Seeing my falling away into this emotional experience, stop, come back. So we, the goal then is to start to bring that into our moment-to-moment life. And we actually train with that. And a great way to train with that is to set an intention. I usually do it by month, just because I find that it's a good amount of time to work on something, which is not so long that you kind of feel like you kind of run out about it and not so short that you feel like you haven't got to do anything with it. But I would pick, try and find like some particular issue or aspect of your life which feels um, like you're not responding in the best way possible, right? Like to take this example, last year um, I was having a problem saying no. In uh, two requests in my job, and also just because of what I was experiencing emotionally to other people, like to taking the space and time to be like, pause instead of just falling into it and trying to please the other person. I need the space to actually be with myself, and then I could be with you in a, a genuine way, right? So the commitment I made for that month was I'm going to try this month, and I'm commit to doing it at least once, right? And notice the smallness of this definition of faith. I'm going to try every time and I'm going to commit to doing it at least once. Somebody's going to come up to me and I'm going to say to them, hold on, I can't talk to you right now. I need to sort of just be present and silent for a few minutes and then I can talk to you. And just stop and do that right in the moment. Right? Which is pretty uncomfortable. If you're really nervous, right? <laughs> to do that to somebody. That's pretty uncomfortable. So my intention that month was, can I bring awareness? Can I bring the discipline of awareness to these moments? 
And then when you do that, you start to notice the moments more and more and more. Then there's the opportunity of bringing that discipline, which you've now you've learned in the practice, to like, oh, I'm falling. I'm, I'm watching. I'm watching myself now falling into the pattern of responding. And once I'm watching myself falling into it, I can actually change it in that moment. I can be like, oh, wait a second. <laughs> I don't actually have to fall into that condition response I always have. I can take a moment and change that. And that can work with any issue. And each person, you just define your own whatever it is, right? You're working on your own thing, whatever it is you're working on. And I generally have, I mean, I'll tell you, I do like a little reminder on my calendar. So for each month, I have the thing I'm working on come up each day. You know, so it reminds me, like, that's the thing you're working on, because I forget about it, of course. Right? And so then it reminds me, it's like, okay, yeah, today again, let's bring my mindfulness again to I'm working on this particular thing. Because it's, it's hard to be mindful of everything. It's great if you can, but it's really hard, right? So if you work on things bit by bit, so just try that. Pick something and try to bring that discipline to it. And the more you practice, also just formally, it'll help you develop that discipline to be able to bring to those life moment-to-moment experiences. But what yeah, is yeah. the direct connection between what you do when you're on the cushion and saying to somebody, it, those are two very different acts. When you're on the cushion, you're breathing and being quiet. When you're talking to someone, you, what's yeah. the connection? Is it Good. They're exactly the same. I'll tell you why. <laughs> because what you're doing in both situations is bringing unattached mindfulness to the situation. Right? On your cushion, you're training that mindfulness. So you're bringing it again and again. Right? You bring it, oh, I'm observing, I'm observing, I'm observing. Oh, the thing's pulled me, I'm now attached to it, I'm lost in it. Oh, I'm observing again, I'm observing, I'm observing, I'm observing. Right? And what happens in real life? In real life, we're getting attached to it. Right? We're like pulled, we're responded, we're already lost in it. But then we bring the mindfulness. Right? All of a sudden we bring the mindfulness, which is just what we've been training on the cushion the whole time, and that's the place we can change from. Because all of a sudden we're not lost in it, now we're observing it. We're like, oh, right, I've seen this pattern a hundred times, I'm doing the same thing I always do. Which is, respond to this person in this really not the best way, and feeling totally awkward and yucky inside, and, oh, but I can see that now. So now that I can see it, and I'm not just lost inside of it, I'm standing outside of everyone and seeing it, then I can make a decision. Alright? So then, oh, I see it, I can decide. I'm going to stop right now. And maybe you don't. Maybe it's like, I see it, and with this person, it's so uncomfortable for me, or so that I can't respond. Okay, so I'm not going to stop it right now, but I still saw it, and I had the ability to make a decision. And that actually, in that moment, just like in the practice, that's freedom. Right? Those are actually the moments when we have free will. All the other times, we're just caught in the cycle of cause and effect, right? We're just being triggered by things. But those moments, I'll think, ah, now I can choose. But it's really, really hard to do. So we train and train and train and train and train to do it so that we develop the capacity to do it in those difficult situations. Yeah. Um, you're talking a lot about, about um, situations or, or moments when you decide how you're going to react. What about when you're stuck deeper in a, I guess I would say, mood or, you know, where you don't even know where you, you don't even, you can't even describe what the exact emotion is that you have, but it's pretty gross and it's pretty bad, <laughs> and you're just like in, so it's not even a matter of how will I react now, I'm just like, Ugh, you know, it's like, oh, yeah. I mean, what do you do? I, yeah, it's a great question. So we're lost in some kind of flooded emotional experience, right? And it can be like we're in a bad mood. It can be we're overcome with anger. It can be like there can be all kinds of different manifestations of that. But what the reality is is right now we're lost in it. Right? We're totally trapped in it. 
So there are a number of things we can do. And which one is appropriate can depend on the situation. You have to check that out. The first thing is the same thing, bring mindfulness. Right? It's like, okay, can I investigate this? And really what you mean is mindfulness and curiosity, which is often a little hard to do in those situations. Right? But can you just try to have the intention of, this is interesting, I'm totally furious. Right? <laughs> Maybe I can bring a little bit of investigation and curiosity to that. Right? And when you do that, when you can bring the mindfulness, the first thing is that generally when you bring mindfulness, you're not trapped anymore. As soon as you bring mindfulness, there's a certain way in which you're not sunk into the thing. Because mindfulness immediately has that perspective of, I'm a little bit, I'm connected, but I'm a little bit outside of it. And I'm not trapped in it anymore. So there's a little sense of distance and possibility there. Um, and then you investigate. And when you bring mindfulness and you investigate, many different things can happen. What can often happen, at least with me when I'm stuck in those kinds of states, is first of all, I can actually realize what it is I'm actually feeling. Like usually when I'm stuck in those kinds of states, it's like some kind of gray, amorphous, horrible, yucky something, right? And then it's like, oh, really, I'm scared, or I'm hurt, or I'm angry about this. Like underneath that, there's always something more concrete and solid. And when you're willing to spend the time observing it, then you can actually ask what's underneath and get to that place. And then you're not lost anymore in that gunky, rucky, whatever. It's like, oh, this is much clearer. This is clear pain. Good. Now I can deal with this. It's like, okay, I'm hurt because of this. Great. Now I can deal with it in various ways. I can sit with it more. I can go journal about it. I can talk to a friend about it. I mean, there's all kinds of ways I can deal with it. But it's a mu- I'm, in a, I'm in a much different place. I'm in a much, much different place. So that, that's one thing to do, and it's very important and very valuable. Um, another thing, and this is connected to the mindfulness, is that often we maintain those states because we're resisting them, right? Um, and you probably noticed this in your practice, if you do the practice, right? That as long as you're resisting something, you're feeding it. So when we're willing to bring mindfulness to it, we, we can also do often is like invite it in, right? Just be like, oh, feeling yucky, come on in, right? <laughs> you just invite it in, and there's a lot of more spaciousness there. There's a lot of movement, and it actually enables the mindfulness to happen. So if we're not inviting it in, there's just a lot of resistance and a lot of stickiness. Sometimes, however, you can't really get out of it. You're just stuck, right? And then you need to do something else that can create the space where you could then start to bring mindfulness. For me, for instance, uh, often exercise helps do that, right? Like just finding something else skillful that's going to break that hold for a second. It could be reading a good book. It could be shouting at the top of your lungs. It could be listening to music. It could be watching TV. I don't know, right? Find something that does it for you. Just something that shakes you up enough that you can get the space to be like, okay, I have enough space now that actually I can maybe observe this now. Sometimes it's just like too hard. You're just trapped in it. You're trying to bring mindfulness. It doesn't work. You just keep on being trapped in it, right? So when you notice that happening, you should be like, okay, this isn't working. Go to plan B. Right? And plan B is finding something, and you need to kind of figure that out in your own life that's going to help you break that pattern. Is there a follow-up? There's like a big follow-up question. Okay. Next well, I'm going to pause. Okay. We're at 9.30. So, um, a few things. Um, we're not going to meet next week, because Yom Zikaron. I assume people are going to take a scene. Uh, but we'll be meeting again in two weeks. Uh, we'll be starting, I think, a section. I've been thinking a lot recently about joy, which is quite different from today. 
Uh, we're going to be starting, a, I think, a section, at least for a week or two, uh, talking about joy and sort of the cultivation of joy. Um, and um, uh, for those of you who are new, I don't know if there's anybody new here, uh, this class is by donation. Please give generously. Uh, it's my livelihood. And um, let's sit together for a minute. In your own time, just open your eyes and return to the room. Um, wonderful to see you all again. Have a great week. If people can help as normal, return the classroom to its normal state and put the uh, blankets, etc., away. <laughs>